Yeah, this is a familiar story. We've all uh, heard it before, at least I, th- I think so. If it's your first time, I'm so glad you're here. But for most of us, it's a, it's a familiar story. I want you to imagine just a minute if this story had never happened. I know it's really hard for you to even imagine a world, if you're a Christian, that this story had never happened before. Um, but that's the story that was happening around the birth of Jesus at the time. Before Jesus had been born, he had not come into the world. This story it, it could have never happened. Uh, imagine that. Imagine, because I think about that, that every good thing in my life, I believe, every good thing in my life as a Christian, every, every, every shred of redemption, every shred of the goodness of God, being a part of a church family, uh, having God give me uh, forgiveness and, and righteousness uh, through Jesus, all that would come to happen through Jesus Christ, every good thing I have in my life is not because of me. It's because of my relationship with another man, Jesus Christ. It's, it's because of Jesus and what happened through him, ultimately which started him becoming a human embryo and taking on human flesh and growing up and living a perfect life and ultimately going to death on a cross and being raised from the dead Everything good that's happened in my life or in your life or in this world, I believe, is because of this story. Everything good that's happened in my life is is because of something that happened in another man's life, in Jesus Christ's life, then given to me, then gifted to me. Imagine how different your life would be. Imagine it in moments like this. I remember a moment about 10 years ago, I have four kids. The oldest is now almost 20. So at this point in time, all four kids were 10 and under. And I had this idea one Saturday morning, and I don't want you to get the idea that I cook very often because I don't. But I had this idea that uh, I used to make these waffles with cinnamon and vanilla. And I had this idea that I would get up in the morning and make these waffles for everybody. And I was being very idealistic. It was Christmas time, and I was going to be a, a great dad. We are going to have a great family moment. And so I get into cooking, and I, I mix you know, part of the batter, and I recognize I have a problem. We don't have any cinnamon or vanilla. Um, and so I, I'm getting frustrated, and I, I realize that I'm, I'm not really being, in, I'm not in a good place, you know. And about that time, Olivia comes in. She doesn't really know what's going on. And she says, hey, I was thinking today, it's Saturday. We ha- we're really behind on our Advent devotional. Let's do a family devotion and at that moment in time, I'm really not in the mood to do a family devotion. I'm, I'm in the mood to be angry that I can't make my waffles. Um, but in this moment, I end up, you know, relatively quickly repenting and, and going through a Christmas devotion. The Christmas devotion that day was on how life right now is imperfect. This is what, whatever I picked up and read that day. Life right now is imperfect. And if you expect perfection in life, then you're gonna be sorely disappointed. Jesus came to make everything perfect, but that perfection isn't here yet. It will happen one day in heaven when all things are made new. Imagine if Jesus had never come. Imagine if the gospel wasn't true. In moments like this, in those little slivers of moments we can all relate to in life, my repentance means nothing. It, it, it means that maybe we have better relationships in our family for that moment in time. But fundamentally, if when you sin, and that is certainly, that was a sin, I was sinning in that moment, there's no doubt about it. 
There's no reconciliation. There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. You just carry around the burdens of your life and, and hope for things to somehow work out better in the end. We need this redemption. And, and this hope of perfection that comes one day but isn't here now just really resonates, doesn't it? I feel like there's no other time, ironically, than Christmas where we feel more pressure in life to just have all of our ducks in a row, to have everything figured out financially, all the Christmas lights need to work, we need to have all the presents bought, we need to figure out how to make all the family relationships work, and we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves at Christmas when in fact Jesus came to alleviate us from our burdens. It's this deep irony of our lives that even though Christ came for us and why he came for us is because we tend to constantly put this perfectionistic standard on ourselves. But if we strive for perfectionism in this life or especially at Christmas, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Some of us have really high expectations for the week of Christmas, but others of us have very low expectations for the week of Christmas. You actually have very dismal expectations this week. Jimmy Fallon made up a song for the holidays a few years back where in the song he said if it wasn't for naps, football, and alcohol, he couldn't get through the holidays. And, you know, he was making light of something that's actually really serious. A lot of us feel that way. I was at a holiday party last night in my neighborhood, and it's amazing how many people bring their own alcohol to the party just in case there's not alcohol there because they know there's no way they're getting through that party without some kind of alcohol. So that, that's just the way that, that people roll. We, we feel like we need a lot of outside help to, to manage and make it through the holidays. So the question is, is there hope that shines through in the midst of this pain that we feel in our lives? Is there hope for those of us who put perfectionistic standards on ourselves the more we feel the pressure, the more we recognize we need a Savior. And so today we're going to talk about how Jesus came for us when we feel, when the world was being taxed. Okay, I love this, I love this um, part of the story. The first uh, part of the story is the world has no room for Jesus. That's the first point. And as the world has no room for Jesus in verses 1 through 7, the first thing we notice in this section is that the world taxes us. The world taxes us. I grew up reading a King James version of the Bible where it says the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, a lot of translations now say the world should be registered, but both are implied here. Mary and Joseph, why did they go to the city of their ancestral heritage? Why did they go to Bethlehem? It's because of Caesar Augustus and this census. And Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And during his rule, Caesar began a campaign to portray his father, Julius Caesar, as a god and to portray himself as the son of God. So you have someone who is styling himself as the son of God, who is requiring the real son of God to go inside of his mother to Bethlehem because of this tax he is putting on the world and on Joseph and Mary. So they take this trip, as you know, Joseph walking with Mary, Mary on the back of a donkey. Mary is nine months pregnant. They're going from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the south. That was actually a long way. I want you to imagine 
uh, what it, how uncomfortable it would have been for Mary to be in her third trimester. Some of you don't have to imagine how uncomfortable that is. But all of us, even if you've been pregnant in your third trimester, probably have to imagine what it would feel like to ride on the back of a donkey for a long, long time. Um, if you're Joseph in this situation, I kind of put myself in Joseph's position. I would have been really, really angry that my wife had to ride on the back of a donkey. The chance of miscarriage, the chance of health problems, uh, the chance of delivery problems within delivery, it's, it's all going to be much higher in this situation, and yet this was the situation that they found themselves in. The world is taxing Mary and Joseph, and there was a lot of pressure on them this first Christmas. And as Jesus is is in the process here as, as, as they're going into a birthing situation. They didn't have a chance to choose their favorite doula, and they didn't have a registry at Pottery Barn where they got to pick out all their favorite things. No, that was not in the equation at all. In fact, as they get to their ancestral hometown, I want you to realize this. As descendants of David, they would have had hundreds and potentially thousands of family members in Bethlehem. But not one of them was willing to take them in. Why? Because of this question that existed around Mary's pregnancy. You see, she and Joseph were not married. And it was absolutely uh, incomprehensible that she would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So everyone surmised that she, they, they were having a child out of wedlock and that they were, this was a, a problem. This was a sinful pregnancy. And that Joseph should have put her away quietly, as everyone encouraged him to do. And so everyone in their family and in their religious community rejected them. Absolutely within one of these homes in Bethlehem, someone could have taken them in. But in a moment when they needed the most support from their religious and family community, they were rejected. And so they went to the innkeeper, no room in the inn. And then you go to the barn. There's a very good chance that they didn't even have the whole barn to themselves because probably other people traveled there too. It's very possible that they were not the only people in the barn. Some people believe, and I think, why not, that there, it was just a stall that they were in. It was one stall in the barn with all the animals, and here they are where Jesus is being born. They faced a tremendous amount of pressure on that first night. They were taxed beyond what they felt like they could bear. In our situation as Christians in our culture today, uh, sometimes we can feel taxed. I think sociopolitically, it's even a challenge sometimes to know how to celebrate Christmas. I mean, you can celebrate it to yourself. Um, but I, I was reading on Facebook not too long ago that there are people who believe that if you say Merry Christmas to them instead of Happy Holidays, that you're infringing on their civil rights. Um, and so it's this weird moment where how do we celebrate Christmas in our culture? So our, our, our greater socio-political culture can make it odd to know how to celebrate Christmas. I think our, also our local culture taxes us at Christmas time. And especially in a place like Cary, um, where, I don't know if you live in Cary or wherever you live, Apex or Durham or Raleigh, but wherever you live, there's an expectation on parents at Christmas time 
that you should really just get it all right. I mean, sometimes we call them helicopter parents, but I'm amazed by the number of things that kids get and the number of trips that get gone on by families and, and the expectation of the, the merch, as it, it's, I've heard it said now, that you're supposed to be able to, to have and, and all the things. You're supposed to have a nice home with a nicely manicured yard and perfect holiday decorations. You're supposed to have a well-paying job with flexibility and you're supposed to be able to buy all the presents and maybe go on a vacation and save for retirement and feel at ease in the midst of all of the financial pressures that you're going through. And so we feel taxed by our culture, but probably the most taxed we feel is not coming from outside of us, but it's coming from within us. At at Christmas, uh, as we relate to family and as we relate to money and as we relate just to ourselves, we're really aware of our own sin. It's really, we sin against each other. We get frustrated. Um, tempers flare and, and we, we struggle. And I don't know about you, but I am, am often very aware of the sin in my own heart and the pressure that I feel within at this time of year. And we feel this internal pressure. And so we feel taxed at Christmas time. We're told in our culture also to make it worse that even though we're aware, I'm aware of my sin, there's nothing, there's no other time of year where I'm more directed to be self-centered than I am at Christmas. And so I'm directed to be self-centered, and then when I'm self-centered, I realize that I'm really messed up, and so I've got this whole, like, thing going on in my heart that often causes great unrest. So we feel taxed. The world taxes us, and yet the world has no room for Jesus. Others who had traveled to Bethlehem earlier that day had probably found a better place. They finally find themselves in this stable, but there is no room for them. It's famous, you know, no room in the inn. They only have this singular stall in the barn. And I want you to recognize that it's into this pressure-filled world into this world that has no room for Jesus, that God makes room for us. Somehow into the midst, because God knows that we need him, because we are so filled with the taxation of this world and all the pressures we put on ourselves and are put on us, God sends his son into the world for exactly this reason. And yet the world has no room for him But I guess this shouldn't surprise us that much because I wonder how many people in the world and how many of you, honestly, have room in your life for Jesus right now? Do you have room in your life for Jesus this Christmas or is it just too busy? Charles Spurgeon preached a famous sermon on December 21st, 1862 in England called Hast Thou No Room? This is a little bit of a long quote which is unusual for me, but I loved it so much I wanted to include it for you. So listen well. Spurgeon says, The palaces of emperors and the halls of kings afforded the royal stranger no refuge. Alas, my brethren, seldom is there room for Christ in palaces. But what about the senators, the forms of political discussion? Was there no room for Christ there? Alas, my brethren, none. And to this day, there is still little room for Christ in parliaments. Might there not be found some room for Christ in what is called good society, 
Were there not in Bethlehem some respectable people who could find room for Christ? Ah, dear friends, folly and finery, rank and honor, jewels and glitter, frivolity and fashion, there's no room for Jesus there. But what about on the exchange? Cannot Jesus be taken to the marts of commerce? There is no room for Jesus in the mart or the shop. Then there are the schools of the philosophers. Surely they will entertain him. Dear friends, it is not so. There is little room for Christ in colleges, in universities, very little room for him in the seats of learning. But surely there was one place he could go. Was there not room for him in the temple or the synagogue? No, he found no shelter there. This was, in fact, his whole life long where he made his most ferocious enemies. And I'll add this, if his words are true in 1862, they're true even more today. The world has no room for Jesus. The powerful, the wealthy, the comfortable, the cultured, the educated, the religious, we all have our reasons not to find room in, in our hearts for Christ. But I want to tell you, it's not just the empowered. It's not just the elite. It's not just the wealthy. It's also the poor. It's also the blue collar. It's also the marginalized. There are reasons for the poor and the socioeconomically depressed to also be busy about their things. They're, they're, they're bit, we're, I'm not in that, that situation myself, but as I interact, there, there's room for people to always find a reason to be too busy, to be too entitled, whether you're rich or you're poor, to find room for Christ. People from every economic class, every educational background, Every cultural status find reasons why they don't have room for Jesus. And so God comes to us, to our world, and yet many people and even many of us find no time for the Son of God. But Jesus makes room for us. That's what we find in verses 8 through 12. We were too taxed for Jesus, but he makes room for us. And this is the gospel. Even though we can't find room, God makes room for us. And we find this here. How does Jesus make room for us? Well, being the second person of the Trinity, he set aside his heavenly glory. He laid aside his power and he took on human flesh. He, imagine this. This is almost incomprehensible. Whole councils have been held in church history over trying to understand how it's possible that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, could lay aside his, his glory. This is glory that is incomprehensible, incomparable to anything that we see. Any kind of wealth, any kind of power, any kind of status, anything that you can imagine in this world, any kind of home that you, you know, might read about online or drive by and think, what would it be like to live there? There's nothing that can compare to the resources that the Son of God had and yet he was obedient and laid it all aside. And to do what? He became a human embryo. So all the fullness of the Godhead, as Jim preached on last week, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, all that Jesus is, somehow then, is put into an embryo in the womb of a virgin. It's incredible that Jesus took on human flesh for us. He took on flesh. He grew inside of a human being. He became a man. And not just any man, the, the God-man. 
So he lays aside his heavenly glory. He lays his power aside. As Philippians 2, 7 put it, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus chose a life willingly, intentionally, of downward mobility. You can't go more in an inverted slope than that. I mean, that is a, that is a downward slope. He went from... He, well, he remained the son of God, but he went from second person of the Trinity, all that heaven has to offer, and he, he set it all aside and took it on, took on flesh, and went in this, this inverted slope and took a life of downward mobility for us. Be, becoming a human baby, he, he became poor in, in a makeshift barn, and his life would continue to go down from there. You might think, oh, he was born in a barn. That's really surprising, but then you look at the rest of his life. He, it didn't go up. He kept on suffering. He suffered all of the miseries of this life. All of the miseries that you and I experience. He did not say, I'm the son of God. And so I'm not going to experience some of those things. No, he, he took it on. And even more than you and I will ever experience, he was treated with such injustice that he was rejected. And he was hung on a cross. This is the downward mobility of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Jesus submitted himself to the taxation that this world has to offer. He felt tremendous pressure, pressure from his family, pressure from the religious elites, pressure from politicians. So much pressure that on the night before he died on the cross, he actually, he was praying he prayed if there's any way that he didn't have to continue to suffer and be separated from his father. But he actually, his sweat turned into blood because of the stress that he was under. He was taxed. He was taxed more than you and me. Which means that you, whatever you're experiencing right now, and whatever, if it's in the past or in the future, whatever pressure you will be under, it will never be greater than what Jesus experienced which means that Jesus can relate to you. There's no other religion in the world that has a God who becomes a human being and takes on all of the humanness, all of the misery, all of the suffering, even to death on a cross. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? We find this in the Christmas story. He did it to free us from our burdens, Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Why did God send his son into the world? Why did he do that? It was to free us from our burdens. It's so that we could be forgiven. It's so that we could have peace in our hearts in the midst of all of the pressure Sometimes we don't experience that peace. But Jesus died to give us that peace, and one day we will have everlasting peace. But he, he came to give us peace with God and favor with God. Listen to the lyrics of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. It says, And ye beneath life's crushing load, who, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way, with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. 
But I wonder how many of, of us, and I wonder it for myself, how many of us are living in that freedom that Jesus came as a baby and died on a cross and was raised from the dead to bring to us? How many of us are living in the freedom that the gospel has to offer, free from the crushing burdens of perfectionism that this world places on us? Sherry Thomas is the co-founder of Pericaleo, which is a ministry to church planners and pastors' wives. Before she started Pericaleo, she was a missionary in South America. We have some family of hers here, so sorry, maybe I should have given you a head up, heads up. I was quoting her today. But she tells a story of how she was explaining the gospel to someone in Peru, and they responded by saying, Oh, I get it. You're asking me to let go of one form of bondage and to embrace another kind of bondage. And she was like, whoa, what am I miscommunicating about the gospel? But she started to, to reflect on herself, and she said, to some degree, this is what I have been believing. And it helped her to understand the gospel in a deeper way. Do you feel like that in, in becoming a Christian, that you've let, for, let go of one form of bondage only to embrace another form of bondage, that, that Jesus or the Trinity is some great taskmaster that's, that's holding you to account and is looking at everything that you're doing and making sure you do everything right. Do you feel like God is reinforcing your perfectionism? In which case, that is not the gospel. That's not good news. Hey, here's even more perfection you need to live up to. Good luck. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are forgiven and free. Yes, we, there's a new obedience that we're called to, but there's a freedom to follow Christ, and there's empowerment from the Holy Spirit that comes. We, Jesus came to bring us peace and favor. This is the song of the angels. The angels did not sing glory to God in the highest, and on earth an even higher standard of perfectionism that people need to then live up to. If that was their song, I don't know that the shepherds would have been so excited about it. I think they might have stayed in their fields. But the angels said there is good news of great joy. In Bethlehem, your Savior is born. So we are forgiven and we are free now. Jesus makes room for us and frees us from our burdens. He's not another taskmaster. He came to give you freedom and so the final point is make room for Jesus this Christmas. Make room for Jesus this Christmas in the final six verses of 15 through 20. So who makes room for Jesus in the final verses of the passage? Well, it's the shepherds. The shepherds make room for Jesus. How does this happen? I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. We're talking about Thousands upon thousands of angels that come to declare this good news to the world about peace and favor and blessing from God on, on earth on whom his favor rests. So what were the shepherds like at this time? Well, if you know anything about shepherds, they were really social outcasts. Uh, they, were, they had no property. They had no you know, empowerment, no bank accounts. They had no social status. They were, in fact, believed that they could not be trusted. They were kind of thought of as like sailors today, roaming from place to place, not really having a home base. Uh, there was a lot of, of moral sin among 
the shepherds. The Jesus Storybook Bible says that shepherds were smelly riffraff. Um, I love that. So they were low in the social pecking order. Why did God choose to tell the shepherds first? Well, uh, it's kind of amazing, but I was invited uh, 12 years ago into Jordan's first grade class, and I was asked to teach the kids about the Christmas story. This is public school. And so I was like, that's cool. And so there's a really diverse group of kids there, and we were friends with some of them, and still are even to this day. And I brought up, you know, the Christmas story. I got to this part, and I asked the question, why did God bring the good news to the shepherds first? Why do you think that is? And one of the children said, I suppose they were the kind of people, I love this, I love this answer, that didn't receive good news very often. Just love that. Yeah, not a lot of good news. And so God says, I'm going to tell you first. You people who don't get good news very often, I'm going to tell you first. I think that's one reason. I think there's a few other reasons. These men had room in their lives. They didn't have anything going on. Really? They were watching sheep, but I mean, they didn't have a really busy schedule that day. They needed cleaning up. They were aware when God said, you need grace, that was not surprising. Yes, we do. Um, They were comfortable around dirty stables, the kind of places where God often frequents. They weren't the kind of people that were going to go toe-to-toe and argue with God intellectually about his plan to save the world. They were just, thank you. That sounds amazing. Uh, They weren't going to stall out the conversation with a philosophical discussion. And they were nomads, which worked out well because they could take the gospel wherever they went. Their response is a great example of how to make room for Jesus in their lives. They simply believe, worship, and then get active. Believe, worship, get active. That's simple. And they just did it. They went and told it on a mountain, the good news of God's grace. So I've got a couple of closing questions for you. Will you make room for Jesus this Christmas or are you too busy this Christmas for Jesus? If if an angel came to you today and said, Jesus Christ came for you and it's good news and you have to have some new priorities, would you pull out your iPhone first and think to yourself, I wonder if I can fit that in right now. I've just got such a busy schedule. I mean, you might. I mean, some of us really, maybe not. Maybe if you actually knew it was an angel. But God is coming to you and saying that, and and a lot of us don't have room. Are you too controlling for Jesus this Christmas? Jesus comes announcing freedom to the captives if you will follow him. But actually, the, the very notion of freedom makes you anxious because you're so used to being wrapped up in your plans that the idea of following someone else actually gives you anxiety. But Jesus came to give you freedom. But it's going to require change. One thing I learned about myself when I went overseas uh, as a missionary a long time ago, I had to take this really extensive psychological profile called the MMPI, where they ask you all these questions, tons of questions, like 800 and some questions. And then they give you like a little half-page printout of things you can learn about yourself at the end. I was like, wow, I'd, I'd love to know a little more. But anyway, one of the things it said was, you like change as long as you can be in charge of the change. But you don't like change if you're not in charge of the change. And I was like, 
that's not true. That's totally not true. Of course, that was change being forced upon me. Um, that's completely true for me, and it's true of a lot of people, that with the story of the Son of God coming to earth, this change is being forced upon you. There is good news through a king, and you are summoned to receive it. You do not get to say, I don't know how I feel about that way, or I'm not sure how I feel about the way that God would be leading the world or his plan for salvation. That's, that's really not your call. Your call is to believe and to worship and to get active. A lot of us have a hard time with change that we didn't get a chance to talk about before it was exerted on us. So are you too controlling for Jesus this Christmas? Are you too cynical for Jesus this Christmas? Even when the Holy Spirit speaks, you have so many answers to why that's just not going to work out. Um, so the shepherds were neither busy, controlling, or cynical, and it was to their great advantage, and we can learn from that. The second question is, after you make room for Jesus, if you will, then when you make room for him, what kind of room will you give him? What kind of room? Will you give him the whole house, or will you put him in a closet in the back? Um, what's it going to be like? You know, I started out with talking about how every good thing we have in our lives comes from, not from us, but from Jesus. It's, every good thing that happens in our lives spiritually, and I believe period, comes because Jesus Christ obeyed his Father and took on human flesh and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead. Every good thing you have in life comes because Jesus was obedient. It doesn't come from you. It comes from your relationship with another man. You know, recently, as a lot of you know, I've had an opportunity to um, advocate for Wang Yi, who is a prisoner in China. And I found myself in a very unusual situation where I am getting a lot of attention and I'm being invited into a lot of places of power, a lot of places where people would love to go uh, to sit with inf influential people. But the only reason why I am growing in, and I use this like very uh, softly, but any kind of like fame or people know who I am is because of my relationship with someone who is in prison. Do you see the incredible irony that that puts me in? I'm being invited into places like the White House when the one that I'm, the only reason I'm there is because Wang Yi is in prison near Chengdu. And it, what does that do for me? Well, it, it grounds me. It, it helps me understand that I'm not here because of me. I'm here because of someone else. It actually frees me. I have to think to myself, what would he do if he had this opportunity? And even though that is my unique situation that God has put me in, this is the situation that we all find ourselves in in relationship with Jesus. The only reason you have anything good, the only reason you have any blessing spiritually is because of another man. And it's because that other man became a human embryo and became a baby and died on a cross for you. And so we have to then, what does that do for you? It helps you let go of your entitlement. Do you think you deserve more than you have? You don't. 
Every good thing that you have comes because a man, Jesus, became a human and died on a cross for your sins. We're going to go to the table in just a minute, but I want you to reflect on that. I think there's an opportunity for us. How do you make room for God? How do you make room for Jesus this Christmas? You need to recognize that he made room for you, and that is incredible news. And every good thing you have comes because Jesus did that for you. We'll go to the table in just a minute, but as we prepare in just a moment, um, I just want you to reflect on that. What does it look like for you to make room for Jesus this Christmas? Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled to be your people. We recognize that we find ourselves amazingly in a situation of blessing when we deserve to be in a situation of cursing. And yet you have lavished your love on us. That you died to give us peace and freedom and joy. And I pray that as we, rec- as we reckon with the gospel in our hearts, that you died to set us free, that everything we have comes from you, Lord. Would we lay down our entitlements, lay down our busy schedules, lay down anything that might hinder us from accepting the free offer of grace that comes through the gospel. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Son, we thank you that you were obedient to the Father's spirit. We thank you for making us alive to the gospel in our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.